recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It's been a while since we've um, presented a segment of Martin Luther on the Jews and their lies. I like finishing everything I start, Yahweh willing. So we started Martin Luther, and even though I understand that it's laborious at times, we are going to finish presenting Martin Luther. In our last segment of this presentation of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives, which was written in 1543, we discussed at length two men whose writings Luther cited frequently. These men are Nicholas of Lyra, who lived until about 1349, and Paul of Burgos, who died in 1435. Luther usually referred to them as Lyra and Burgensis. Both of these men had advanced educations in Judaism. Both of these men, and I use the word sarcastically, both of these men converted to Christianity as adults. Of course, anyone who, who is um, solidly grounded in Scripture should understand that no Jew can truly be a Christian. Both of these men rose to the upper echelons of the Catholic hierarchy, and both of them wrote commentaries on the scripture which were widely published, and especially in the case of Lyra, which were the most popular and widely read biblical commentaries available during the Middle Ages. Urgensis didn't really write his own commentary, but he wrote lengthy additions to Lyra's commentary, and they were published together. Therefore, it is safe to say that these converso Jews had a tremendous influence on what may deceivingly be described as that traditional Christianity which is found in early Protestantism. It is certainly evident in the writings of Luther who rather than standing upon Scripture in order to rebuke the Jews, usually adopted or formulated sophistic philosophical arguments instead. While Luther was a Christ-loving and God-fearing man, in many ways he was deceived, being a follower of these converso Jews rather than a follower of Christ. It's evident that these converso Jews, Lyra and Bergensis, had a great impact on medieval Catholic thinking, and they had a great impact on the thinking of the, earlier, of the early reformers. And they certainly had a great impact on Luther. We won't see it too much tonight because of the content of the balance of Part 5, which we are presenting at the moment of Luther's on the Jews and their lies. But we certainly will see it next week when we, when we present part six of Luther's essay. While we can respect Luther 
for his own sincerity and his piety towards God, we must learn from the mistakes which he made, where he believed that at least some Jews could be converted, and his thought was tremendously influenced by those converted Jews. Raymond Lull is another one that he mentioned. Later in life, as this essay which he wrote attests in many places, Luther realized the treachery and deceit of the Jews. But it is apparent that he did not reconsider and reform his own learning as a result of his realization. We can also respect and even admire some of the positions which Luther took and the courage he exhibited in standing against the tyranny of the Roman Catholic papists. But we must understand where he did not go far enough in reforming a true Christian church. In our last segment of this presentation, we left off in the middle of part five of Luther's essay, and we shall commence with that here. For a long time, Luther had been addressing Genesis 49.10. Actually, he's been addressing it since the beginning of part four of his essay. In the King James Version, Genesis 49.10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. He is attempting to illustrate that the scepter and lawgiver of Judah remained in Judea until the time of Christ. I'm sorry about the feedback. That's what happens when I um, try to get into talk shoe on my second computer and the window comes up 15 minutes later. Luther is attempting to illustrate that the scepter and lawgiver of Judah, promised to Judah in Genesis 49.10, remained in Judea until the time of Christ, when Christ became the bearer of the promise. However, while attempting to use this passage to refute the Jews, Luther's interpretation is forced, and he contorts the meaning of the words, not understanding the true history of Judah in the dispersions of Israel among the nations of Europe. And Luther interpretation, being ignorant of true Israel identity, that he quotes from 2 Samuel 7.12, to help state his case, while fully ignoring 2 Samuel 7.10. We will repeat that passage here so that we understand the gravity of Luther's oversight. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them 
that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Now, these words are spoken to David in Palestine. So Palestine cannot possibly be this appointed place. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also, Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house, and when thy days be fulfilled, that thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. If the people of Israel were to be removed from Palestine, then by necessity, the throne of David had to move along with it. Luther's interpretation insists that it did not move except for the 70 years in Babylon. Luther then cites 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 4, in order to change the nature of the promise to David. Here we shall quote that chapter from verses 2 through 5 in preparation for understanding the next part of Luther's treatise. And 2 Samuel 23 says, from verse 2, The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, this is the words of David, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, Rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not God, yet he is made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he makes it not to grow. The biggest problem with Luther's interpretation of Genesis 49.10 is that from 586 B.C. until 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem, no one from Judah ever held a scepter in Palestine, and no lawgiver from Judah governed over Israel in Palestine. But Luther absconds the idea of shining forth, which is found here in 2 Samuel 24.4, I'm sorry, 23.4, and imagines that it can replace the promise of Genesis 49.10 rather than merely augmenting that promise. Luther destroys the prophecy while attempting to defend it. Not to commence with Martin Luther, although I will have many comments interspersed, where he continues his discussion in reference to 2 Samuel 23.4. Now we note how nicely the saying of David 
referring to the passage we just read, harmonizes with that of the patriarch Jacob. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the Mehokak from his seat until Messiah comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, that Mehokek word, that's what Luther put into his text. He explained at length earlier in this essay, in, in, in part four, that this word Mehokek means a lawgiver. But the word Messiah is Luther's interpretation of the Hebrew word from which we derive derive the word Shiloh. Luther insists that Shiloh means Messiah, meaning the first advent of Christ. Shiloh basically means peace in Hebrew. And Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. I would object to the fact that peace has come. I would object to the assertion, I'm sorry, that peace has come with the first advent of Christ. It certainly has not. Anyone who thinks so should read the Revelation, which is a book of war. Luther goes on to say, how can it be expressed more clearly or differently that David's house will shine forth until Messiah comes? And here, Luther is substituting the scepter and the lawgiver of Genesis 49.10 with the idea of shining forth from 2 Samuel 23.4. He's doing this in order to make the prophecy fit his interpretation, but he is abusing Scripture in order to do so. Genesis 49.10 clearly states that the scepter will not depart from Judah, that a lawgiver will always be between his feet until Shiloh comes. Luther is taking the idea of shining forth from, Genesis, from, from 2 Samuel 23.4, and he's replacing the scepter and a lawgiver with this idea of shining forth, that all the house of David has to do in Palestine is to shine forth, which is a very ambiguous phrase. Do they have to just be good? Is that it? Do they have to set a good example for... for several centuries, and that's good enough to replace the scepter and the lawgiver. That's ridiculous. That, that, that's contrary. Contrary to the promises to David, it's contrary to the meaning of Genesis 49.10. Luther continues. Then through him, the house of David will shine not only over Judah and Israel, but, over, but also over the Gentiles. Luther accepted the Jewish definition of the word Gentiles to mean non-Jewish peoples or nations, which is not the meaning of the word. Or over other and more numerous countries, 
And Luther universalizes the term for nations by accepting the Jewish definition and ignoring so many promises to Abraham and to Israel. He goes on to say, this indeed does not mean that it will become extinct, but it will shine farther and more lustrously than before his advent. And this, as David says, this is an eternal kingdom and an eternal covenant. Therefore it follows most cogently from this that the Messiah came when the scepter departed from Judah. Unless we want to revile God by saying that he did not keep his covenant and oath. And once again, Luther forces his own peculiar reading. Because Genesis 49.10 says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. It does not say, as Luther reads it, that Shiloh will come when the scepter departs. I don't know if he got that from Bergensis or from Lyra, but it's bad. It's reversing the meaning of the prophecy. Today's clerics do the same thing with passages such as John 10:26. Christ told the Jews, you don't believe me because you were not my sheep. Modern mainstream denominations teach that they were not his sheep because they didn't believe him. That's dishonest thinking. That's not a clear reading of the text at all. They didn't believe him because they were not his sheep in the first place. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Luther imagines that because, and he understands this, because Herod is an Edomite and can't, cannot lawfully rule over the children of Israel in a righteous manner. He cannot hold the scepter of Judah. Luther is perverting Genesis 49.10, reversing the two ideas and saying that because the scepter departed from Judah, Shiloh came, meaning the Messiah appeared. That's not what Genesis 49.10 says. He's got it backwards. And he goes on to say, even if the stiff-necked, stubborn Jews refuse to accept this, at least our faith has been confirmed and strengthened by it. We do not give a fig for their crazy glosses, which they have spun out of their own heads. We have the clear text. And I would add to that, we have the clear text and a right to make crazy glosses of our own. No, that's certainly not the case, but that is what Luther is doing. These last words of David, to revert them once more, to revert to them once more, I'm sorry, are founded on God's own word where he says to him as he here boasts at his end, would you build me a house to dwell in, quoting, to Samuel 7.5. You can read what follows there, how God continues to relate that until now, he has lived in no house, but that he has chosen him, David, to be a prince over his people, to whom he would assign a fixed place 
and grant him rest, concluding, I will make you a house, quoting 2 Samuel 7, 11. But the sixth place of 2 Samuel 7, 10 must be somewhere other than Palestine. It's the people who are being relocated in that passage. Luther seems to be oblivious to the entire passage. He goes on to say, that is to say, neither you nor anyone else will build me a house to dwell in. I am far, far too great for that, as we read also in Isaiah 66. And Luther's quoting the passage which says, thus saith Yahweh, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Luther continues, No, I will build you a house, for thus says the Lord, as the nation asserts, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, 2 Samuel 7.11. Everyone is familiar with a house built by man, a very perishable structure fashioned of stone and wood. But a house built by God means the establishing of the father of a family who would ever after have heirs and descendants of his blood and lineage. Thus, Moses says in Exodus chapter 1, that God built houses for the midwives because they did not obey the king's command, but let the infants live and did not kill them. On the other hand, he breaks down and extinguishes the houses of the kings of Israel in the second generation. It amazes me that Luther accepts as literal, and he correctly accepts as literal, that the house that David was promised forever would be of his flesh and blood. But when it comes to the promises to Abraham, which were also to his seed, Luther would deny that. That's incredible. Thus says David, I'm sorry, thus David has here a secure house built by God, which is to have heirs forever. It is not a plain house. No, he says, you shall be prince over my people Israel citing 2 Samuel 7, 8. Therefore it shall be called a princely, a royal house. That is, the house of Prince David, or King David, in which your children shall reign forever and be princes such as you are. The books and histories of the kings prove this, tracing it down to the time of Herod. And with this we must contend, since in Palestine. After Zedekiah went in fetters to Babylon, no son of David was king or prince or ruler in Palestine. Luther goes on to say, until that time, meaning the time of Herod, the scepter and Saphra are in the tribe of Judah. And the reference to Saphra is a word for scribe, 
for lawgiver from the Aramaic copies. Luther had explained that in part four. But the promise to David goes beyond that. To intend a ruling king, which Judah did not have in Palestine after 586 B.C. Luther seems to be purposely ignoring this facet of the prophecy, pretending it for the Jews by purposely confusing the land of Judah with the tribe itself. There was no king of Judah in Judea for over 600 years after the destruction of the first temple. There's still no king, king in Judah, in Judea. To continue with Luther. Now follows the second theme concerning Shiloh. How long shall my house thus stand, and how long shall my descendants rule? And notice that Luther is once again about to skip over 2 Samuel 7.10. He answers thus, quoting from 2 Samuel 7.12-16, to 16, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body. And Luther makes a parenthetical statement, utero, that is, from your flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. And we see that Luther would protest this assistance upon flesh and blood if it were applied equally to the promises made to Abraham. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men, as one whips children, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This statement is found almost verbatim also in 1 Chronicles 18. It's actually in 1 Chronicles 17. Where you may read it, 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14. To continue with Luther, whoever would refer these verses to Solomon would indeed be an arbitrary interpreter. For although Solomon was not yet born at this time, indeed the adultery with his mother Bathsheba had not even yet taken, been committed. He is nonetheless not the seed of David born after David's death, of whom the text says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you. For Solomon was born during David's lifetime, it would be foolish, yes, ridiculous, to say that the term raised up here means that Solomon should be raised up after David's death to become king or to build the house. For three other chapters, 1 Kings, chapter 1, 1 Chronicles, 
chapter 24, and he really means chapter 28. And 1 Chronicles 29 attests that Solomon was not only instated as king during his father's lifetime, but that he also received command from his father David, as well as the entire plan of the temple, of all the rooms, its detailed equipment, and the organization of the whole kingdom. It is obvious that Solomon did not build the temple or order the kingdom or the priesthood according to his own plans, but according to those of David who prescribed everything, in fact, already arranged during his lifetime. Luther insists on applying 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, which he just referred to and just quoted. He insists on applying them to Christ. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 says, when he commits iniquity, and Christ never committed any iniquity. Moreover, Christ being Yahweh in the flesh, Yahweh knew damn well that he would certainly not commit iniquity. Rather, the word which Luther translates as raise up and claims that it's ridiculous to interpret it as concerning Solomon, that word also means establish. Luther's a dishonest man in his arguments, probably because he learned them from Jews. The word means established, and it is often rendered that way in the King James Version in other passages, where the context clearly indicates that it should be translated as established. Luther takes for granted his own devices to force his interpretation of the passage and expects his readers to follow along. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14 relates to a promised succession of earthly kings beginning with and following after Solomon, as do the other passages which Luther cites in reference to these promises. Luther makes a sophistic argument from the term which he insists must be rendered as raise up, but of course, if David's seed is to be established on David's throne, then it must be born before David dies. So Luther's argument is a horrible failure. There is also a great discrepancy and a difference in words between 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 24, by which he means 28, and 29. The former states that God, Luther referring to 2 Samuel 7, right? The former states that God will build David an eternal house. The later, that Solomon shall build a house in God's name. Luther is lying. He's lying. He's lying because 2 Samuel 7.13 says both. It says, he shall build a house for my name. A house in God's name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's an eternal house for David. This is Yahweh speaking to, about David. He shall build a house for my name, meaning David's seed, meaning Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, an eternal house for David. Now, 
not only did Luther lie about 2 Samuel chapter 7, Luther lied about 1 Chronicles as well because Luther said the former, referring to 2 Samuel 7, states that God will build David an eternal house, the later that Solomon shall build a house in God's name. Well, 2 Samuel 7.13 says both, and 1 Chronicles 28, 6, and 7 also says both. So what is Luther doing? I'm going to read 1 Chronicles 28, verses 6 and 7. And he said unto me, Solomon, my son, he shall build a house in my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as of this day. Both passages say both. Luther is claiming that 2 Samuel 7 says 1, and 1 Chronicles 24, meaning 1 Chronicles 28, because he says 1 Chronicles 24 and 29, and that's probably a gloss in his text. It should have been 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, says both. They both say both. One doesn't say one and the other say the other. Luther made a lie. Wow. The former passage states without any condition or qualification that it shall stand forever and be hindered by no sin. This is also a lie. 2 Samuel 7.14 says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men. That idea is expressed in all the versions of that passage which exist today. The Latin, the Greek the Hebrew, the Dead Sea Scrolls, whatever. It's the same idea. It's consistent. There's no alternate readings of that passage that I saw. Luther had to make a lie again. He's lying to create his arguments. It's sad, but Martin Luther is doing that. He hates the Jews. He wants to prove them wrong. You don't have to lie to do that. It's all over the Bible. He says, the former passage states without condition or qualification that it shall stand forever and be hindered by no sin. Well, 2 Samuel 7 does state without any condition or qualification the promise to David's seed. It does not state that it will be hindered by no sin. Because 2 Samuel 7.14 says, Clearly, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man. (laughs) Excuse me. He says, the later passage, meaning the one in 1 Chronicles 29, the later passage conditions its continuance on Solomon's and his descendants' continued piety. And that's... That's true, 1 Chronicles 29 does do that, but it's not true, because so does 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, fully infer the probability of future impiety. 
Luther says, since he did not remain pious, he's talking about Solomon, he not only lost the ten tribes of Israel, but was also exterminated in the seventh generation. And Luther did not understand that the promise to David of an eternal house could have been fulfilled in other ways outside of Palestine because he was completely oblivious to the text of 2 Samuel 7.10, that those people and that scepter would be somewhere other than Palestine. Now, I'll mention it. I'll get there in a minute. I'm sorry, I had a thought, but I'll get there in a minute. Quoting Luther, the former is a promissio gratiahi, a promise of grace, and the later, a promissio legis, a promise of law. In the former passage, David thanks God that his house will stand forever. In the later, he does not thank God that Solomon's temple will stand forever. And this is also a misrepresentation. Luther is a sophist. He is arguing against something which he himself admits is not in the text, where he says, in the later, he does not thank God that Solomon's temple will stand forever. In both chapters, it's said that David's house will stand forever. The, pr the praise and gratitude David offers Yahweh, as it is recorded, in 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, which is part of the same discourse as Luther's citation of 1 Chronicles, chapter 28. The praise and gratitude David offers Yahweh in 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 10 through 20, is absolutely tantamount to the praise and gratitude David offers Yahweh as it is recorded in 2 Samuel towards the end of chapter 7. In other words, Luther says, the two passages refer to different times and to different things in houses. And we have shown that this is not true. Luther is forcing the text to fit his own shallow interpretation. 1 Chronicles 28.4 refers to David's eternal house. And 1 Chronicles 28 verses 6 and 7 refer to a house built for Yahweh along with an eternal kingdom established for Solomon. Now, Luther is right that the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is without condition, but that applies to David. The promise in 1 Chronicles 28, 6, and 7 are with a condition that Solomon obey and his descendants obey Yahweh's laws. But that promise is only with condition for Solomon. That condition does not apply to David, who had other sons. So Luther is not judging these two passages fairly. And he has lied about them several times, trying to force a distinction that is not there.
Luther says. And although God does call Solomon his son in the latter also and says he will be his father, talking about 1 Chronicles 28, this promise is dependent on the condition that Solomon will remain pious. Such a condition is not found in the former passage, but that's because 2 Samuel 7 refers to David and not to Solomon. So Yahweh made this promise to David without condition. David had many sons. Yahweh appoints Solomon David's heir and gives Solomon the same promise, but with a condition. So if Solomon fails, does the promise to David fail? No, because David had many other sons, Nathan being primary among them. So Luther is not judging the difference fairly. Not at all. He goes on to say, it is not at all rare that God calls his saints as well as the angels his children. But the son mentioned in 2 Samuel 7.14 is a different and special son who will retain the kingdom unconditionally and be hindered by no sin. And Luther is blatantly misrepresenting 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 and 15, to force the passage to refer to Christ, because those passages indeed open the possibility that this son who inherits the throne from David will sin. Therefore, it is a reference to Solomon, to Solomon and to all of the seed after him. Let's read 2 Samuel 7 from verses 10 through 17. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house. This is Nathan speaking to David. And when the days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, this is not talking of Christ, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now let's read 2 Chronicles 28, verses 2 through 7. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building. 
But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Howbeit, Yahweh, God of Israel, chose before me all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. He has chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father he liked me, to make me king over all Israel and all of my sons. For Yahweh has given me many sons. This is David speaking. He has chosen Solomon to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon, my son, he shall build my house and my courts. And we see this. David in 2 Samuel 7.13. So they both say that. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. If he be constant to do my commandments and my judges as at this day. The same promise which we see in one, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7, 16, which Luther also cited. Except that the difference is one promise is to David, and it's without condition. The other concerns Solomon, David's designated heir, and it has a condition. But that doesn't mean the conditional promise to Solomon does not negate the unconditional promise to David. Luther is totally misrepresenting this. David had other sons who may well have carried the promise if Solomon failed, and they did. Because Christ descended from Nathan, as Luke 3:31 informs us. Luke chapter 3 informs us. While Matthew gives the transmission of the scepter down through Solomon down to Joseph. I'm going to um, I'm going to read something I said in my June 9th, 2012 presentation of chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. There are many reasons which are often conjectured, but the differences in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies of the Christ. From the earliest Christian writers, Debate has been made concerning the reasons for these differences, and a book could be written explaining all of them. It is also conjectured today in Christian identity, as it had also been in ancient times, that perhaps Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy, while Luke really may have recorded that of Mary. This, of course, is alluring, and it makes for an easy explanation. However, it is not in any way supported by the manuscripts themselves. Not at all. The only way in which it can be imagined 
believing the texts of both genealogies as they are written. The only way in which it can be imagined that both genealogies are true is that Matthew's account is seen as explaining the official line of succession of the throne itself. But if Luke's account is seen as explaining the line of actual physical descent down to Joseph, the departures in the two genealogies can only be explained if, on at least two occasions, a man raised up seed for a brother who did not leave a male heir to succeed him. One, just before the time of Zorobabel, and another just before the time of Joseph. However, because the records from the two periods in which that must have happened are not available in Scripture, none of this is recorded. Any other theory that I, that I have witnessed so far, which attempts to explain these differences, denies plain statements made in the Gospels themselves and cannot be explained by known Hebrew laws and customs. Christ was the lawful heir to the throne of David through Joseph, and he was also of the seed of David through his mother. However, the promise to David and the prophecy concerning Judah's scepter were upheld in other ways. Outside of Palestine, Luther was blinded to the truth of 2 Samuel 7.10. And it can only be the providence of Yahweh God that he seems to have totally ignored that passage while relying so heavily upon the rest of the chapter. He just glosses over 2 Samuel 7.10, just passes it right by as if it's not even there. Luther goes on to say, also the prophets and the Psalms quote 2 Samuel 7, which speaks of David's seed after his death, whereas they pay no attention to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, which speak of Solomon. Now, I would say that it is clear, and Luther misses this. This is why we have to understand the historical context of all the scriptures. It is clear from Scripture and history that the books of Chronicles are only a compilation of the remnant of records of the ancient kingdom which are made after the fact. And most likely, in the days of Ezra the scribe, while most of the prophets and most of the Psalms long preceded Ezra the scribe. Those books survived from long before Ezra the scribe. Luther goes on to say, in Psalm 89, we read, and he's quoting Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4, I will sing of thy steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim thy faithfulness to all generations. For thy steadfast love was established forever. Thy faithfulness is firm as the heavens. Thou hast said, 
I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. These two are clear words. God vows and swears an oath to grant David his grace forever and to build and preserve his house, seed, and throne eternally. And we agree with that. Then he says, later in verse 19, we have an express reference to the true David. This verse contains the most beautiful prophecies of the Messiah, which cannot apply to Solomon. For he was not the sovereign of all kings on earth, nor did, he, nor did his rule extend over land and sea. I'd have to say that, yes, it did. These facts cannot be glossed over. Furthermore, the king did not remain with Solomon's house, the kingdom. He had no absolute promise with regard to this, but only a promise conditional on his piety. But it was the house of David that had the promise, and he had more sons than Solomon. That's what we've been saying. And as the history books report, the scepter of Judah at times passed from brother to brother, from cousin to cousin, but always remained in the house of David. For instance, Ahaziah left no son, and Ahaz left none. So according to the custom of Holy Scripture, the nephews had to be heirs and sons. Once again, Luther's argument is patently dishonest. Psalm 89 repeats all of the promises to David in its opening verses. But Luther just forgets about the other half of Psalm 89. Psalm 89, from verse 30, repeats the conditional promises which Luther ignored in 2 Samuel 7, 14, and 15 about sin. But it also describes how David's throne was cast down to the ground which happened when his seed after Solomon grew increasingly disobedient to Yahweh God. Luther ignores the entire later part of this psalm. Verse 38 from Psalm 89. But thou hast cast off and abhorred. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Thou hast broken down all his hedges. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies to rejoice. Thou hast also turned the edge of his sword and hast not made him to stand in the battle. Thou hast made his glory to cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth hast thou shortened. Thou hast covered him with shame, Salah. How long, Lord, how long will thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Wherefore hast thou made all men vain? 
What man is he that lives and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Selah. Psalm 89:44. Cast his throne down to the ground. Psalm 89:39. Profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Talking about the throne of David in Palestine. Lucas Luther has purposely ignored this entire half of this psalm to support his contrived argument concerning the promises to David in relation to Palestine and Christ. What Psalm 89 is actually expressing is faith in the promises which have been made to David in spite of the fact that the writer has witnessed the destruction of David's throne in Jerusalem. The writer has admitted that this throne was cast down to the ground. Luther claims throughout his argument that it was still there. Anyone who would venture, the words of Luther, anyone who would venture to contradict such a clear and convincing statement of Scripture regarding the eternal house of David, which are borne out by the history showing that there were always kings or princes down to the Messiah, that's a blatant lie, must be either the devil himself or whoever is his follower. For I can readily believe that the devil, or whoever it may be, would be unwilling to acknowledge a Messiah, but still he would have to acknowledge David's eternal house and throne. Yes, but it was not in Palestine. For he cannot deny the clear words of God in his oath, vowing that his word would not be changed, and that he would not lie to David, not even by reason of any sin, as the aforementioned psalm impressively and clearly states. Of course, we do not deny the veracity of the promises but we only question Luther's forced application to the intertestamental period in Judea. And that forced interpretation assists the cause of the Jews in maintaining their false identity. Instead, we read 2 Samuel 7.10, which Luther ignored, in concert with other prophecies, such as Ezekiel chapter 17, and we understand that the promise to David was fulfilled in different ways outside of Palestine. It is noble that Luther imagines that only a devil can deny the word of God. But in turn, we see how narrow an interpretation he was forced to make simply because he was not granted the blessing of understanding the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham which occurred outside of Palestine. Luther didn't understand that, even though Paul explained it very plainly in Romans chapter 4. Blindness, when it's from God, is a powerful thing. Luther goes on to say, now, such an eternal house of David is nowhere to be found unless we place the scepter before the Messiah and the Messiah after the scepter and then join the two together, namely by asserting that the Messiah appeared when the scepter departed. 
and that David's house was preserved forever. And Luther is oblivious to Israel outside of Palestine. Therefore, he is, he is forced to make these crazy assertions and create his own glosses in order to do so. Again, it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. It does not say that the Messiah will come when the scepter departs from Judah. Luther says, in that way, God is found truthful and faithful in his word, covenant, and oath. For it is obvious that the scepter of Judah completely collapsed at the time of Herod. Wow. But much more so when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the scepter of Judah. Now, here's an anomaly in Luther's thinking, a serious one. If Luther imagines Christ to have the scepter of Judah at his coming and his ascension into heaven, how could the Romans destroy the scepter of Judah when they destroyed Jerusalem? That's a big lapse in Luther's thinking. He doesn't even believe his own words. Luther knew that Herod was an Edomite bastard, was a false Judean, a false Jew. However, the Maccabees that Herod usurped, who ruled Judah for, well, probably about 120 years, 116 years before Herod, they were not of Judah. They were of Levi. They were high priests. They were not kings from Judah. The Maccabees were not of Judah. The lines of Solomon and Nathan in Judea, they were there. The Gospels attest to them. But they were never permitted to be rulers or lawgivers. And that, too, is according to the word of God. Curse of Jeconiah precluded the kings of Judah, their descendants, from ruling in Palestine again. That didn't affect Nathan, but Nathan had no claim to the throne. Luther says, Now if David's house is eternal and God truthful, then the true king of Judah, the Messiah, must have come at that time. No barking, interpreting, or glossing will change this. The text is too authoritative and too clear. If the Jews refuse to admit it, we do not care. And I would say that the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel indicated when the Messiah would come. And that's very clear. But that had nothing to do with the scepter of Judah. For us, it is enough that, first of all, our Christian faith finds here the most substantial proof, and that such verses afford me very great joy and comfort, that we have such strong testimony also in the Old Testament. Of course, Christians can find plenty of other prophecies fulfilled from which they may glean spiritual sustenance. Luther continues, Second, we are certain that even the devil 
and the Jews themselves cannot refute this in their hearts, that in their own consciences they are convinced. This can surely and certainly be noted by the fact that they twist this saying of Jacob concerning the scepter, as they do all of Scripture, in so many ways betraying that they are convinced and won over, and yet refuse to admit it. They are like the devil, who knows very well that God's word is the truth, and yet with deliberate malice contradicts and blasphemes it. Luther may have realized that they are the devil, if he understood that true Judah was somewhere else. Since he did not have that understanding, he imagined the Jews to be Judah by default. The Jews feel distinctly that these verses are solid rock and their interpretation nothing but straw or spiderweb. But with willful, willful and malicious resolve, they will not admit this, yet they insist on being and on being known as God's people solely because they are of the blood of the patriarchs. And that claim on Luther's part is in spite of Scripture. It is not according to Scripture. Luther took it for granted that the Jews were the blood of the patriarchs. Wow. He was simply oblivious to the fact, the biblical fact, that the Jews were Edomites mixed in with a small portion of Judah, a very small portion. He goes on to say, otherwise they have nothing of which to boast. As to what lineage alone can affect, we have spoken above. It is just as if the devil were to boast that he was of angelic stock, and by reason of this was the only angel and child of God, even though he is really God's foe. Luther understood the Jews by nature. He understood that they were devils by nature. He just didn't understand the scripture that identified them, not as God's people, but as devils. I don't know how Luther could have ignored John 8, the first epistle of John, chapters 3 and 4, the second epistle of John, Luke 11, Revelation 2, 9, Romans Chapter 9, Revelation 3, 9, they would have all satisfied Luther's dilemma. Ezekiel 34, the history of Josephus, Luther had to have access to the Greek texts. It's incredible. The power of the blindness of God. These things simply weren't to be revealed in his time. Now that we have considered these verses, let us hear what Jeremiah says. His words sound very strange, for we know that he was a prophet long after the kingdom of Israel had been destroyed and exiled, when only the kingdom of Judah still existed, which itself was soon to go into captivity in Babylon, as he foretold to them and even experienced during his lifetime. Yet despite this, he dares to say, in chapter 33, verse 17. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, 
to burn cereal offerings and to make sacrifices forever. And of course, Jeremiah does say those things, but they are only strange if we insist upon confining them to the 70 weeks kingdom in Palestine, where there was no son of David sitting on the throne of Judah there for 600 years unto Christ. And the Levites were the kings and the lawgivers for a good portion of those years. If we understand the history of Israel and Judah outside of Palestine, these words of Jeremiah are not strange at all. They were only strange to Luther. At least he had the courage to admit it. He goes on to say, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So the throne of David had to be elsewhere, but Luther could not see it. So he insists, that this throne of David is in Palestine, even though it very plainly was not. He continues, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed what these people are saying? The Lord has rejected the two families which he chose. Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his descendants to rule over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy upon them. So the people of Yahweh must have been elsewhere. But Luther cannot see it, even though he read all around 2 Samuel 7.10, earlier in this chapter of his essay. He says, what can we say to this? Whoever can interpret it, let him do so. Luther admitted that he couldn't interpret it. We are blessed with this understanding today in Christian identity. Luther was not granted that understanding. He was more of a man for saying, whoever can interpret it, let him do so. He only knew that the word of God is true and made the wrong arguments as to how that could be so. Here we read that not only David, but also the Levites will endure forever. And the same for Israel, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which was Luther, at least one of them. It is emphasized that David will have a son who will sit on his throne eternally, just as surely as day and night continue forever. On the other hand, we hear that Israel will be led away into captivity, and also Judah after her, but that Israel will not be brought home again, as Judah will be. And only a very small portion of Judah ever returned. 
not the whole tribe. And many other prophecies talk about later gatherings of Israel as well of Judah, which Luther is ignoring. Tell me, how does all this fit together? God's word cannot lie, just as God watches over the course of the heavens, so that day and night follow in endless succession. So too David, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, must have a son on his throne uninterruptedly. God himself draws this comparison. It is impossible for the Jews to make sense of it, for they see with their very eyes that neither Israel nor Judah has had a government for nearly 1,500 years. In fact, Israel has not had one for over 2,000 years. And of course, Luther's writing this in 1543. None of this is true in relation to the Jews. Only Luther is ignorant of the history of Israel and Judah in their dispersions. He insists on applying these things to the Jews. None of them apply to the Jews. He says, yet God must be truthful. Do what we will. The kingdom of David must rule over the seed of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, as Jeremiah states here, or Jeremiah is not a prophet, but a liar. We shall let the Jews reconcile and interpret this as they will or can. And of course, none of these things apply to the Jews, who are basically Esau. He goes on to say, but this passage leaves no doubt. It affirms that David's house will endure forever. Also the Levites and Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's seed under the son of David, as long as day and night, or as it is otherwise expressed, as long as sun and moon endure. If this is true, then the Messiah must have come when David's house and rule seeks to ex- cease to exist. But that's not what Genesis 49 says. This is Luther's forced interpretation. David's house and rule must still exist. And even if we understand Christ to hold the scepter, which Christ actually rejected kingship at his first advent, if we want to read the gospel, Christ is not a Levite and neither are the Jews. Thus David's throne assumed more splendor through the Messiah. Now he's twisting the meaning. As we read in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Pele, Joetz, El, Gibor, Abigad, Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and Luther is not translating the words. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. We may revert to this later, but here we shall refrain from discussing how how the blind Jews twist these six names of the Messiah. Luther's reading some of these 
individually these that these six words. They accept this verse and they admit or they must admit that it speaks of the Messiah. We quote it because Jeremiah states that David's house will rule forever. First through the scepter up to the time of the Messiah and after that much more gloriously through the Messiah. So it must be true that David's house has not ceased up to this hour and that it will not cease to eternity. But since the scepter of Judah departed 1,500 years ago, the Messiah must have come that long ago, or, as we have said above, 1,468 years ago. All of this is convincingly established by Jeremiah. Of course, the Messiah, Yahshua Christ, is the king of kings. But he rejected kingship during his first advent. He also rejected the idea of peace. Shiloh cannot have come by the time of the Messiah. He returns to take kingship at his second advent, and only then shall Israel have peace, which is the outcome of Revelation chapter 19, when all the bastards go into the lake of fire. Christians consider Christ as king in anticipation of the fulfillment of that very promise. Luther was indeed a man of great faith in Christ, and the Jews could never blind him in that regard. However, having a lot of his own learning from the Jews, he was indeed blinded in many other ways. meant for Israel and Judah, whether in Palestine or in captivity, to the Edomite Jews was caused by his blindness. The only proper interpretations of Scripture are made in what we are compelled to call Christian Israel identity. We can admire Luther for where he was right, but we must grow in truth beyond him where he was wrong. And the same is true of the rest of us. We must also apply that same attitude towards all of our teachers as the revelation of Yahweh God unfolds. This concludes part five of Martin Luther's essay on the Jews and their lies. And we will soon present part six. I apologize that this presentation is so belabored. However, it is necessary to understand not only where Luther was mistaken, but also why and how he was mistaken. We must avoid his errors, while also understanding that the mainstream Christian denominations have repeated Luther's mistakes while ignoring the good works that Luther made and ignoring them completely. Where Luther was right about the nature of the Jews, their inherent evil, the mainstream denominations disregard him entirely. With all of his errors, the Lutheran Church and the other mainstream denominations would do better to have followed Luther than the route they've eventually taken. To his credit, Luther understood 
Apparently, he just didn't understand why they were evil. Not properly, anyway. Next Friday, Romans chapter 12. Next Saturday, on the Jews and their wives, part 6. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.